Well, we are at the end of a very short sermon series on the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, this has been a very challenging sermon series for me to work on, especially with our upcoming move. And let me just take that opportunity again for some of you guys who came in late that we are moving next month. Uh, details in the, the back. There's a sheet of paper back there. Um, and, and we hope that you will come and check out our new location on March 22nd when we anticipate will be our our first service is there, just more space, more room, more opportunity to do the things that God has called us to do. Um, this being the end of the sermon series also, I'd like to just point your attention to these salmon-colored uh, sheets you can also pick up in the back. If you haven't gotten one, these are all of our sermons and our sermon series for uh, the spring term. And uh, we have Andrew Bryant, who's been our service leader this morning, he's going to be preaching for us uh, from this, uh, Psalm 8 next week, and then we're going to launch into a series on Colossians over several weeks. So we just encourage you to read along, read what the scriptures say, test what we say by what the word of God says, because that is our ultimate authority. Um, and, and we encourage you to join us in that journey through the scriptures with us. Um, we are this morning in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is sort of the end of uh, these first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as we, we come to this book, it's sort of like, I don't know, even know what the analogy uses. I've, I've thought about what cheesy analogy I could give you guys, and I've, I've not come up with a good one. So we've reached the end. Um, we've reached the end. And hey, if I, if I chop a few minutes off my introduction, then I finish a few minutes earlier, right? So that's, that's all good. Um, as we look, come to the book of Deuteronomy, we, we, we have seen uh, the work of God through Genesis and Exodus, through Leviticus and Numbers, and we come to Deuteronomy and the overarching theme, the overarching idea that I want to impress on you this morning is that God graciously offers us life through obedience. Graciously does God offer us life through obedience. We're going to unpack that. Um, there's so much that we could, we could say here, but again, this is not a sermon series on Deuteronomy. This is a sermon series on the Torah, and we're going to spend one week here. Um, the book of Deuteronomy is in many ways, not perfectly, but at least in part influenced uh, and modeled after an ancient treaty form that had at least seven basic components and I'm not going to give you a seven-point outline this morning, but there's really four that are paramount or four that, are, that kind of rise to prominence in this book. And we're going to look at those four as kind of the, the general outline here before we kind of pull these threads together and see what it says for us in the 21st century. I'll say more about that in a second, but the basic outline here is that we have a prologue. That'll kind of be our introduction. And then the four points we're going to focus on are the prehistory, the provisions, the piecemeal, and the promises. The prehistory, the provisions, the piecemeal, and the promises. We'll look at each of those in, in turn. Um, but like I said, there is also a prologue to this book, and we're going to hit that first as a way at least of setting the stage a little bit. And so if you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1, that's where we'll get started. You can turn, click, swipe, tap, do what you do, but I do think with these like book-long um, sermons, it is a little easier to flip pages than to constantly have to go back into the menus. But hey, you do you. Um, and if we look at the very beginning of this book, we say th these 
are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizabah. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Sair to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrei. The prologue sets the stage for the rest of the book, and it reminds us of where we are. Remember, all of Genesis through Deuteronomy is really one single composition. In Genesis, we were introduced to God's creation and his chosen royal line that would bless the world and how that line ran through Noah and Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob and Jacob's descendants, Israel, and how that line in Jacob ended in Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we learned that the line of blessing had been brought into slavery from which God rescued them. He did that by revealing himself to them and thus making them his people. He took them to Horeb, Horeb with a mount in Sinai, where he gave them his law through Moses. And then while there, Yahweh, God, gave them explicit instructions on how they could draw near to him through a system of sacrifices centered at a tabernacle, a mobile temple that would always be in the midst of God's people. And the height of that book was the day of atonement in which the sins of Israel could be cast off forever and could be atoned for by the blood of a goat. And then God commanded them to set out toward the land of Canaan, what we would call Palestine today. But the people repeatedly rebelled against Yahweh, who responded by requiring them to traverse the wilderness for 40 years. We just read that really it's an 11 days journey, but they spent 40 years traversing that 11 day trip. 40 years until that generation that had rebelled against God had fully died off and was gone. We saw that at the end of Numbers, that generation had passed away and they were encamped on the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River, and that's precisely where Deuteronomy picks up. The name Deuteronomy uh, comes from the Greek words deutero, meaning second, and namas, law, second law. Um, and, and God had given the Israelites the law once before at Sinai, but that had been 40 years ago. Some of the Israelites that are here at this point in the story had not been alive yet. They hadn't even been born. Uh, and those who were, uh, were largely most of them, were too young to have been responsible for all those commandments and those teachings. And given how rebellious the older generation had been, it's doubtful how much they had passed on to their children. So Yahweh, through Moses, engages in something of a covenant renewal ceremony, a chance for this generation to ratify their own commitment to Yahweh and his law. I said it followed in, in ancient form. And it does, and this is something that we didn't even realize two or three hundred years ago, but just recent, more recent archaeology in the last century or bit, we have uh, discovered um, there was an ancient treaty form that was used to cement a relationship between two parties. 
And it would have been well known to people in this time and place. And Deuteronomy doesn't follow it exactly, but it does seem like used as a model. Like here's something the Israelites would understand. And so God uses this, this treaty form that they would understand to express his relationship to them. Specifically, it follows the form of a suzerainty treaty. That is a treaty that is offered by a suzerain, which I know that's not helpful either. Um, a suzerain was a, a regional power or, or a king. Um, these, these forms of treaties were generally enacted between the more powerful suzerain and the weaker vassal or client state. It was a form of contract or agreement of a relationship. A form of it might have been used when, say, a more powerful state came in and, and conquered a weaker state. And the weaker state would retain some basic level of autonomy, but would be under the protection and care of the more powerful state in exchange for loyalty and typically some form of tribute. And that's what Moses is about to introduce for us in the pages of Deuteronomy. It's a suzerainty treaty in which Yahweh, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great king, is acting as the suzerain. And Israel is acting as the vassal. And Yahweh is going to graciously protect and care for Israel in return for covenant loyalty and honor. And we begin to see this form take shape in verse 5 of chapter 1. These treaties commonly included a prehistory. Might go by a different name, but I wanted to use all P's just to, because I could. Um, uh, a recounting of the past history between the parties. Um, that continues through the end of chapter 3, and these treaties would describe, here is all the ways and all the things that this suzerain, this king, has done for this people over time. And these things could be recounted over and over again as a matter of retaining and encouraging loyalty. Uh, much of this prehistory that we see in these first three chapters, we've, we've covered We've covered as we read through Exodus, Leviticus, and particularly Numbers. Um, probably because this is a covenant renewal ceremony, most of this prehistory here centers around the book of Leviticus and Numbers. It starts at Horeb or Mount Sinai and focuses on how Yahweh has led them to the place that they are today in Moab. It recounts a number of their failings, which were the fault of the Israelites' rebellion or their sin, but it also recounts the many, many times that God mercifully provided for them, cared for them, and even granted them victories over his enemies. This has been this generation's experience with Yahweh. He was faithful to them, even when their fathers and mothers tested his patience to its limit. And he was the source of every good thing that they had. It's important for those of us who are God's people who are Christians to from time to time reflect on the wonderful past history we have with him. What has God in Christ done for you, for us as a body? I know in, in dark hours when I have wondered whether I was even truly a, a Christian, whether I was truly faithful to Christ and whether he would call me as his own. I have reflected back on how he saved me, how he grabbed my dead heart and shocked it back to beating life when I was certainly in no way searching for him. When I have doubted God's reality or the truth of the gospel, 
I can look back and reflect on the, the great faithfulness that he has shown to me. How he has carried me each day since that day in 1994 in which I turned to him in faith and repentance. Plenty of times I have been stupid. I have been foolish. I have been simply wicked. And yet he has shown me goodness and mercy. And as a people, we do this too. We reflect on what God has done for us as a group, as a church. In fact, there's a time we specifically set aside to do this. It's the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate at at this church on a monthly basis. It's a time not to engage in mere ceremony. It's not just something we do or we have to do because we're Christians. Instead, it's actually something of a covenant renewal ceremony at which time we reflect on the past deeds of God toward us. The voluntary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for our sins. His resurrection from the dead and his promise of resurrection to those of us who believe. So as Paul reminds us, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Reflecting on our past history with our faithful father is good. At the end of this section of of Deuteronomy is a a brief interlude, a time of exposition by Moses himself, encouraging and exhorting these Israelite people to remain faithful to God. And his exhortation centers around the idea of who God is. Yahweh is not like the... uh, Yahweh is not like the empty idols of the land that they are about to enter or the weak deities that couldn't save Egypt. They couldn't stand before God in Egypt. And so they must not imagine God to be like the myths of culture around them. They must not worship him like that. They could not accept any substitute for him. Instead, he is the God who has done amazing and powerful wonders. Instead, Moses says in chapter 4, verse 39, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Everything else God has to say to his people here and anywhere is rooted in this, his character and his nature that it be regarded as holy by his people, except no substitutes. Well, the lion's share of this book is what we might say is the, the second point uh, that I want to focus on for my, for my sermon, which is the provisions, the provisions of the treaty between Yahweh and his people. That's the law, as we think of it, the rules and requirements that the people are to follow to maintain covenant loyalty and it stretches from about uh the the end of well the beginning of chapter five through about midway through chapter 26 maybe the end of chapter 26 but it has within that two broad sections the first slightly shorter section is the general principles of god's law and those actually have the highest weight and the second bigger slightly bigger section, is a specific application of those principles in everyday life. So let's, let's look at those kind of two subsections of the provisions. First, the, the general principles. And the general principles are highlighted by the Ten Commandments and the great 
commandment. The Ten Commandments here in, in chapter uh, 5 are almost identical, almost word for word from Exodus chapter 20 when they were announced on Mount Sinai to the Israelites. They are the heart, they are the center of this law that God is giving the Israelites. And they bear repeating. They say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe this Sabbath to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. These are the Ten Commandments, or in Hebrew they call them the Ten Words. And they form again the heart of this covenant. It's it's a system that is beautiful in its simplicity. And every other command in the scriptures, every other command and provision of the law flows out of these general principles. And as we move from the specific commands to these more general uh, rules, we see them as outworkings of these principles. These ten laws, these ten words, demand a pure and unadulterated devotion to Yahweh and a commitment to care for and protect one another. But even these ten commands are derivative. Moving into chapter 6, Moses tells the people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Moses says, this is the commandment that I am commanding you, that the Lord is commanding you today. The commandment. And so really the Ten Commandments are an outworking of this one commandment. Love Yahweh with everything you've got. All of you. Every hour of your time. Every possession in your home. Every bit of strength in your bones. Every talent and gift that you have. Love Him with all of it. And if you know what He is like, you'll arrive at these Ten Commandments. And if you know what he's like and have these ten, you'll arrive at every other moral demand of God. The next few chapters um, after six uh, focus on important themes, warnings and, and cares about what will happen when the Israelites do cross that Jordan River into the land of Canaan. First up, they're instructed to make a quick end, a swift end to the idolatrous people who have come under God's judgment lest the Israelites fall into idolatry themselves. It's a reminder and encouragement for the Israelites to stay faithful to God, even when they grow prosperous in the land that God is giving to them. These chapters, to me, are some of the most real in the book because God warns the Israelites not to think that the blessings that they're about to experience in Palestine 
are a product of their own worth or their own value or their own merit, their own strength, their own smarts, their own success. And so in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the scripture says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. In fact, dropping down to verse 6, continues, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. And then Moses goes on to recount some examples of the Israelites' stubbornness and unfaithfulness. There is a temptation to forget God when things are going well. When things go poorly, we're forced to kind of reflect on our own mistakes, aren't we? But when things go well, we tend to pat ourselves on the back and move on. And Moses pleads with God's people to not be so callous and forgetful, but to remember that God is doing good for them for his purposes. And that can easily be lost. But God's people should not be that way. They must remember that our blessings, however small or great they may seem, are never earned. They are never deserved. They are grace, a free gift from God. He is owed all our praise and thanks. It does not matter how miserable you may see yourself in light of everyone else on social media. Whatever small good you have is an undeserved, unmerited, unearned gift from God for whom he is owed all praise and thankfulness. And that direction of loyalty is how that section closes out. We get to chapter 12, chapter 12 through, through the end of chapter 26. We really have the outworking of these 10 basic commandments that were given in chapter 5. Some of them are really specific. And sometimes they make you scratch your head as to why they were included at all. Some are straightforward. You know, discussions of proper worship of God and straying from idolatry, as we find in chapters 12 and 13, makes sense in light of the first two commandments, for example, laws about a Sabbath year, a year of release from slavery, a release from debt, stem from the command about the Sabbath. And we suddenly realize that the principle of Sabbath extends beyond a single day of the week. As you read this section, and I hope that you read this section of Scripture from time to time, let me encourage you to be thinking about the Ten Commandments. In fact, mark in your Bible, just, just mark as you read this section, what of the Ten Commandments does this have to do with? And just, you can write it nine, six on the margin of your Bible, four, one, two. Some of the 
some of these will be really clear to you, but some of these will take some time to wrestle with if it's not clear. But I promise that as you do that, you'll get an idea of how God's justice and love work out in practical ways. I'll take a few examples, but obviously we can't go through every one of these commands in God's law. But you might come across chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. Why is God concerned about landmarks, you might think? Well, remember, God is giving each of the tribes of Israel space, an allotment, an inheritance in the land. They will have their own land, and that land is designed to be kept within the families for generations. Even if a person sells his land, it's not permanent. It returns to the family in the year of Jubilee, which is the year after seven Sabbath years, or another way to say it is every 50 years was a year of Jubilee, and all the property of the land would return to its ancestral families. So even the selling of land was not a permanent thing. In that way, no one family could ever gather up wealth at the expense of the others in perpetuity. The only way you could really secure more land for yourself and therefore more wealth in any sort of long-term basis would be to steal it. If you change the markers of the fields, change the places that laid out whose land belonged to whose, it was a form of stealing from your neighbors, and it was a way, really, of stealing from God. It shows a disregard for one's neighbor, and not just your neighbor, but his entire family of descendants. It was perversely wicked. Or what about chapter 22, verse 8? When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. That's a strange one. But consider that in the ancient Near East, it was common for a house to have a flat roof. And it would be useful to go up onto that roof from time to time, time, perhaps to bring a sheet or a blanket up there and relax in the shade with the cool breeze and the heat of the day. And so it would have been common for someone to be up there or even to entertain guests up there. A parapet is a small wall or fence, and it's commanded that one be installed to protect people from falling to injury or death. The command says that in that case, you bring the guilt of blood upon your house. That means if someone were to fall off your roof and die, you'd be responsible for their death. Do you see? It's an outworking of the sixth commandment not to murder or not to kill. God's people are not just responsible to not proactively destroy life. They're also called to proactively defend life. That they are to look out for the well-being of others and care for their lives. And if, and if you were to disregard the care and safety of your neighbor, it would be nothing less than a lack of love. In fact, it would be hatred. And as Jesus taught us, hatred of our brother is a desire for murder. 
So if your careless actions lead to another's death, that's on you. So we put fences around swimming pools today, don't we? So that an innocent toddler doesn't wander in and find himself in grave danger. We put up wet floor signs when the floor is dangerous and slippery as a warning. Because we are called to protect one another. It's no excuse to say, I didn't do it. If my inaction caused my brother's downfall. We obviously can't explain how each of these laws work, but but two things to keep in mind as you read through this section. One, they are outworkings of the principles contained in the Ten Commandments. So again, as you go through them, think what commandment or commandments does this really draw from? And you can just sit there in your Bible, and it's because it's okay to write in your Bible and just write three or four or seven and see how it's working out. Secondly, they're not exhaustive in this section. They are illustrative. They show God's people how to work out the implications of the law, God's law. They're not designed to be an all-encompassing rubric. They're a teaching tool. Guys, this is how you reason from my moral law in the Ten Commandments and derive the principles by which you will live. Uh, to give one more example, consider chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And in context, that just seems really random and really out there. But the point is, on the one hand, that even farm animals are deserving of some degree of respect. On the other, it means that if the farm animal, the most lowly part of society, deserves some respect and compensation for its work, how much more should any human being who does work on your behalf? So even Paul, the Apostle Paul, could quote this very scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18 to justify to Timothy that it was right for pastors to be compensated for the work of teaching the congregations. So as you read this section, especially chapter 12 through 26, think illustrative and not exhaustive. Illustrative and not exhaustive. Nevertheless, you're going to get through this section and you're going to feel this considerable weight from all these commands. There are a lot of them. And that becomes even weightier in just a moment. But put a pin in that, because I want to consider the piecemeal. The piecemeal arrives in chapter 27. It was a common thing in these ancient Near Eastern suzerainty treaties that the suzerain and the vassal would celebrate their covenant together, celebrate their contract with one another by enjoying a meal together. And they would probably offer sacrifices to their respective gods. Well, that's not going to happen in the same way here, obviously, because Yahweh is God. But look what we have in the beginning of chapter 27. Now, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law, 
when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you to mount ball, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall, bring, you shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So they're going to build an altar on Mount Ebal just after they enter the land, and they'd make peace offerings on it. And if you remember back to the book of Leviticus we looked at two weeks ago, the peace offering were typically voluntary sacrifices that a person could offer it to God. But they were interesting that where the, the person himself and his family would eat most of the sacrifice. And so a, a, a sort of a memorial portion, a, a representative portion was laid on the altar and burned on the altar. And the family would eat the remainder in the presence of God in the tabernacle and later the temple. So symbolically, it was a way for God's people to enjoy hospitality and fellowship with the creator of the universe. It was a reminder that God wanted to be near his people. They could have peace and fellowship they could have intimacy and nearness with the God who created the universe. And he wanted his people to enjoy themselves in his presence. What a wonderful thing. And so just as soon as the Israelites entered the land, they were to do just that. Rejoice and be glad in the presence of God. In the middle of all these laws, and it, sometimes it seems like do this and do that and do this and do that. God desired to be near his people, to enjoy them, and to be enjoyed by them. He wanted them to feast. And that wasn't the only time that this would happen, but there were many examples where God wanted his people to feast symbolically with him, to enjoy his presence and his goodness and to celebrate their relationship and their connectedness to the one who made them. It was a beautiful picture of love and compassion and intimacy. But that brings us to the promises because there was something else to be done on Mount Ebal when they got there and it's connected to the promises. Uh, the next section we focus on, again, if you look up to the form of an ancient suzerainty treaty, they won't call it the promises. I just wanted another P. But uh, it's essentially what it is. They were what will happen to the vassal in particular, that is Israel in this case, as they follow the treaty or don't follow the treaty. And what Yahweh wanted his people to do is to split up with six tribes on Mount Ebal and six tribes on Mount Kerasim. And there were two mountains near each other. In fact, we, they, they did this when they went into the land. You can read about it in the book of Joshua, which we preached on, I don't know, three years ago. Um, 
There's a valley between these two mountains, and, and the Ark of the Covenant, which contained God's law, would be in that valley, and the priests would be in that valley. And the priests would call out each of 12 curses. Perhaps there was a, a curse representative for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Israelites on the two mountains would, after each one, shout, Amen. So be it. Yes, let these curses be on us if we fail to obey this covenant. Chapters 26 through 28 then are filled both with specific and general blessings for obedience to this covenant and curses for disobedience to this covenant. And the portrait of blessing is exquisite. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Well, that sounds wonderful. But the portrait of the curse is horrifying. And it ends in a total reversal of fortunes that pictures the Israelites returning to Egypt, trying to sell themselves as slaves in order to find some sustenance, some life, and being turned down. God says if you continue in disobedience long enough, you'll try to make yourself slaves, and the Egyptians themselves will reject you. They won't want you as their slaves. That's how bad it will be. But notice something about these curses and blessings that I don't want to gloss over. Indeed, we cannot gloss over them. The blessings are for full obedience. Full obedience. And the curses are for a lack of full obedience. That's, uh, that's a high bar, isn't it? If you keep all of this law, you will be blessed beyond measure. But if you fail to keep this whole law, you will be cursed beyond belief. As it says in, in chapter 27, verse 28, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Yet throughout the book of Deuteronomy is this, this promise that if we are faithful to keep God's covenant, if we are faithful to obey Him in all these things, it will mean for us life and not death. But how do we escape the death? How do we find an escape from death if we ourselves cannot keep this law? If we ourselves cannot follow each one of these commandments? If I have hated my mother or father, I'm cursed. And the outworking of that principle is that your mother and father is more than just your biological mother and father, but it's also your leaders 
if any time in the last 12 years you have hated your president, whatever way that goes, you're cursed. If any time in the last 30 years of your life you've set up an obstacle out of spite for your neighbor, you're cursed. If any time in your life you have not given the God who made you the entirety of your devotion and your strength and your love, you are under a curse. Well, that's disturbing. And yet that seems to be exactly what Deuteronomy is saying. But remember that in that book of Leviticus, God made a way, and it, and it pointed forward to something else. We can turn to places like Galatians chapter 3, where Paul writes, starting in verse 10, for all who rely, he agrees, he says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What's Paul saying there? Well, he's agreeing that all of us who might want to keep God's moral law, who might want to live before God and might want to please God and live moral and righteous lives are in fact cursed because we can't do it. We failed to do it. Every one of us has failed to live the sort of perfect obedience that the law demanded. In fact, the point of the law was not to make anyone right before God. It simply taught them what it meant to look right before God, what rightness before God would be like. But in that, it condemned them because it showed them how far they fell short of that righteousness. But God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He obeyed the law perfectly. He didn't break a single commandment, but he fulfilled the law's demands. And then he offered his life on the cross. One of the provisions of the law that Paul cites here, one of the provisions in Deuteronomy, is that cursed is any man who hangs on a tree, which would have included the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who deserved no condemnation because he was, in fact, per uh, perfect, goes to the cross voluntarily and is nailed to that cross so that he becomes a curse. He becomes cursed 
though he does not deserve to be cursed, so that those of us who are under a curse might come to him and find forgiveness and release. He took the curse that we deserved on himself. So that just like in that day of atonement, when the curses are placed on the scapegoat and is sent off to go free in the wilderness and the other goat is sacrificed on the altar. So Christ has been sacrificed so that we can go free. Christ has been sacrificed that we might go free. Yes, you will live if you do all the things written in the law. But you won't. And so you're under a curse. But so will you live if the righteousness of Christ is accounted to your balance. If Christ's curse and Christ's death is put on your account, then you will also live. The righteous by faith, Paul calls it, because by placing your trust in who Christ is and what Christ did for you, his work is put onto your account so that you come out from under the curse of disobedience and live. A life, a spiritual life that wells up into eternity that cannot be taken from you, that cannot be stripped from you by any human power or threat. And so while the book of Deuteronomy places before us this idea that God graciously offers us life through obedience, and he does because he certainly does not need to offer life to a wicked and rebellious people, but he does. But the even better news is that it need not be your obedience. God graciously offers you life through obedience. Christ's obedience on your behalf. If you would take hold of that gift, even today, it would be yours and you go free. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you offer.